Chapter Three, Part One of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Turnell. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Three, Part One. Maldonado. Chapter subheadings are Montevideo, Maldonado, Excursion to R, Polanco, Lazo and Bolas, Partridges, Absence of Trees, Deer, Capybara or River Hog, Tucutuco. Malothrus, cuckoo-like habits. Tyrant flycatcher. Mockingbird, carrion hawks. Tubes formed by lightning. House struck. July fifth, eighteen thirty-two. In the morning we got under way, and stood out of the splendid harbor of Rio de Janeiro. In our passage to the Plata, we saw nothing particular, excepting on one day a great shoal of porpoises, many hundreds in number. The whole sea was in places furrowed by them, and a most extraordinary spectacle was presented, as hundreds proceeding together by jumps in which their whole bodies were exposed thus cut the water. When the ship was running nine knots an hour, these animals could cross and recross the bows. With the greatest ease, and then dash away right ahead. As soon as we entered the estuary of the Plata, the weather was very unsettled. One dark night we were surrounded by numerous seals and penguins, which made such strange noises that the officer on watch reported that he could hear the cattle bellowing on shore. On the second night we witnessed a splendid scene of natural fireworks. The masthead and yardarm ends shone with Saint Elmo's light. And the form of the vein could almost be traced, as if it had been rubbed with phosphorus. The sea was so highly luminous that the tracks of the penguins were marked by a fiery wake, and the darkness of the sky was momentarily illuminated by the most vivid lightning. When within the mouth of the river, I was interested by observing how slowly the waters of the sea and river mixed. The latter. Muddy and discolored, from its less specific gravity, floated on the surface of the salt water. This was curiously exhibited in the wake of the vessel, where a line of blue water was seen mingling in little eddies with the adjoining fluid. July twenty-sixth, eighteen thirty-two. We anchored at Montevideo. The Beagle was employed in surveying the extreme southern and eastern coasts of America, south of the Plata. During the two succeeding years, to prevent useless repetitions, I will extract those parts of my journal which refer to the same districts, without always attending to the order in which we visited them. Maldonado is situated on the southern bank of the Plata, and not very far from the mouth of the estuary. It is a most quiet, forlorn little town, built, as is universally the case in these countries, with the streets running at right angles to each other, and having in the middle a large plaza or square, which, from its size, renders the scantiness of the population more evident. 
It possesses scarcely any trade, the exports being confined to a few hides and living cattle. The inhabitants are chiefly landowners, together with a few shopkeepers and the necessary tradesmen, such as blacksmiths and carpenters, who do nearly all the business for a circuit of fifty miles round. The town is separated from the river by a band of sand hillocks, about a mile broad. It is surrounded on all other sides by an open, slightly undulating country, covered by one uniform layer of fine green turf, on which countless herds of cattle, sheep, and horses graze. There's very little land cultivated even close to the town. A few hedges made of cacti and agave mark out where some wheat or Indian corn has been planted. The features of the country are very similar along the whole northern bank of the Plata. The only difference is that here the granitic hills are a little bolder. The scenery is very uninteresting. There is scarcely a house, an enclosed piece of ground, or even a tree to give it an air of cheerfulness. Yet after being imprisoned for some time in a ship, there is a charm in the unconfined feeling of walking over boundless plains of turf. Moreover, if your view is limited to a small space, many objects possess beauty. Some of the smaller birds are brilliantly colored, and the bright green sward, browsed short by the cattle, is ornamented by dwarf flowers, among which a plant, looking like the daisy, claimed the place of an old friend. What would a florist say to whole tracts so thickly covered by the verbena melindres as, even at a distance, to appear of the most gaudy scarlet? I stayed ten weeks at Maldonado, in which time a nearly perfect collection of the animals, birds, and reptiles was procured. Before making any observations respecting them, I will give an account of a little excursion I made as far as the river Polanco, which was about seventy miles distant, in a northerly direction. I may mention, as a proof how cheap everything is in this country, that I paid only two dollars a day, or eight shillings, for two men, together with a troop of about a dozen riding horses. My companions were well armed with pistols and sabres, a precaution which I thought rather unnecessary. But the first piece of news we heard was that the day before a traveller from Montevideo had been found dead on the road with his throat cut. This happened close to a cross, the record of a former murder. On the first night we slept at a retired little country house, and there I soon found out that I possessed two or three articles, especially a pocket compass, which created unbounded astonishment. In every house I was asked to show the compass, and by its aid, together with a map, to point out the direction of various places. It excited the liveliest admiration that I, a perfect stranger, should know the road, for direction and road are synonymous in this open country, to places where I had never been. At one house a young woman, who was ill in bed, sent to entreat me to come and show her the compass. If their surprise was great, mine was greater to find such ignorance among people who possessed their thousands of cattle and estancias of greatest extent. It can only be accounted for by the circumstance that this retired part of the country is seldom visited by foreigners. I was asked whether the earth or sun moved, whether it was hotter or colder to the north, where Spain was, and many other such questions. The greater number of the inhabitants had an indistinct idea that England, London, and North America were different names for the same place. But the better informed well knew that London and North America were separate countries close together, and that England was a large town in London. I carried with me some Promethean matches, which I ignited by biting. It was thought so wonderful that a man should strike fire with his teeth that it was usual to collect the whole family to see it.
I was once offered a dollar for a single one. Washing my face in the morning caused much speculation at the village of Las Minas. A superior tradesman closely cross-questioned me about so singular a practice, and likewise why on board we wore our beards, for he had heard from my guide that we did so. He eyed me with much suspicion. Perhaps he had heard of ablutions in the Mohammedan religion, and knowing me to be a heretic, probably he came to the conclusion that all heretics were Turks. It is the general custom in this country to ask for a night's lodging at the first convenient house. The astonishment at the compass, and my other feats of jugglery, was to a certain degree advantageous. As with that, and the long stories my guides told of my breaking stones, knowing venomous from harmless snakes, collecting insects, etc., I repaid them for their hospitality. I am writing as if I had been among the inhabitants of Central Africa. Banda Oriental would not be flattered by the comparison. But such were my feelings at the time. The next day we rode to the village of Las Minas. The country was rather more hilly, but otherwise continued the same. An inhabitant of the Pampas no doubt would have considered it as truly alpine. The country is so thinly inhabited that during the whole day we scarcely met a single person. Las Minas is much smaller even than Maldonado. It is seated on a whole plain, and is surrounded by low rocky mountains. It is of the usual symmetrical form, and with its whitewashed church standing in the center, had rather a pretty appearance. The outskirting houses rose out of the plain like isolated beings, without the accompaniment of gardens or courtyards. This is generally the case in the country, and all the houses have, in consequence, an uncomfortable aspect. At night we stopped at a pulperia, or drinking shop. During the evening a great number of gauchos came in to drink spirits and smoke cigars. Their appearance is very striking. They are generally tall and handsome, but with a proud and dissolute expression of countenance. They frequently wear their mustaches and long black hair, curling down their backs. With their brightly colored garments, great spurs clanking about their heels, and knives stuck as daggers, and often so used, at their waists, they look a very different race of men from what might be expected from their name of gauchos, or simple countrymen. Their politeness is excessive. They never drink their spirits without expecting you to taste it. But whilst making their exceedingly graceful bow, they seem quite as ready, if occasion offered, to cut your throat. On the third day we pursued rather an irregular course, as I was employed in examining some beds of marble. On the fine plains of turf we saw many ostriches, Struthio rea. Some of the flocks contained as many as twenty or thirty birds. These, when standing on any little eminence and seen against the clear sky, presented a very noble appearance. I never met with such tame ostriches in any other part of the country. It was easy to gallop up within a short distance of them, but then, expanding their wings, they made all sail right before the wind, and soon left the horse astern. At night we came to the house of Don Juan Fuentes, a rich landed proprietor, but not personally known to either of my companions. On approaching the house of a stranger, it is usual to follow several little points of etiquette, riding up slowly to the door. The salutation of Ave Maria is given, and until somebody comes out and asks you to alight, 
It is not customary even to get off your horse. The formal answer of the owner is, Sin pecado concebida, that is, conceived without sin. Having entered the house, some general conversation is kept up for a few minutes, till permission is asked to pass the night there. This is granted as a matter of course. The stranger then takes his meals with the family, and a room is assigned him, where, with the horse-cloths belonging to his ricado, or saddle of the pompous, he makes his bed. It is curious how similar circumstances produce such similar results in manners. At the Cape of Good Hope the same hospitality, and very nearly the same points of etiquette, are universally observed. The difference, however, between the character of the Spaniard and that of the Dutch boar is shown by the former never asking his guest a single question beyond the strictest rule of politeness, whilst the honest Dutchman demands where he has been, where he is going, what is his business, and even how many brothers, sisters, or children he may happen to have. Shortly after our arrival, at Don Juan's, one of the largest herds of cattle was driven in toward the house and three beasts were picked out to be slaughtered for the supply of the establishment. These half-wild cattle are very active, and knowing full well the fatal lazo, they led the horses a long and laborious chase. After witnessing the rude wealth displayed in the number of cattle, men, and horses, Don Juan's miserable house was quite curious. The floor consisted of hardened mud, and the windows were without glass. The sitting-room boasted only of a few of the roughest chairs and stools, with a couple of tables. The supper, although several strangers were present, consisted of two large piles, one of roast beef, the other of boiled, with some pieces of pumpkin. Besides this latter there was no other vegetable, not even a morsel of bread. For drinking, a large earthenware jug of water served the whole party. Yet this man was the owner of several square miles of land, of which nearly every acre would produce corn, and, with a little trouble, all the common vegetables. The evening was spent in smoking, with a little impromptu singing, accompanied by the guitar. The senoritas all sat together in one corner of the room, and did not sup with the men. So many works have been written about these countries that it is almost superfluous to describe either the lazo or the bolas. The lazo consists of a very strong but thin, well-plated rope, made of rawhide. One end is attached to the broad surcingle, which fastens together the complicated gear of the ricado, or saddle used in the pampas. The other is terminated by a small ring of iron or brass, by which a noose can be formed. The gaucho, when he is going to use the lazo, keeps a small coil in his bridle hand, and in the other holds the running noose, which is made very large, generally having a diameter of about eight feet. This he twirls round his head, and by the dexterous movement of his wrist keeps the noose open, then, throwing it, he causes it to fall on any particular spot he chooses. The lazo, when not used, is tied up in a small coil to the after part of the ricado. The bolas, or balls, are of two kinds. The simplest, which is chiefly used for catching ostriches, consists of two round stones, covered with leather, and united by a thin plated thong, about eight feet long. The other kind differs only in having three balls united by the thongs to a common center. 
The gaucho holds the smallest of the three in his hand, and whirls the other two round and round his head, then, taking aim, sends them like a chain-shot revolving through the air. The balls no sooner strike any object than, winding round it, they cross each other, and become firmly hitched. The size and weight of the balls varies, according to the purpose for which they are made. When of stone, although not larger than an apple, they are sent with such force as sometimes to break the leg even of a horse. I have seen the balls made of wood, and as large as a turnip, for the sake of catching these animals without injuring them. The balls are sometimes made of iron, and these can be hurled to the greatest distance. The main difficulty in using either lazo or bolas is to ride so well as to be able at full speed, and while suddenly turning about, to whirl them so steadily round the head as to take aim. On foot, any person would soon learn the art. One day, as I was amusing myself by galloping and whirling the balls round my head, by accident the free one struck a bush, and its revolving motion being thus destroyed, it immediately fell to the ground, and, like magic, caught one hind leg of my horse. The other ball was then jerked out of my hand, and the horse fairly secured. Luckily he was an old practiced animal, and knew what it meant. Otherwise he would probably have kicked till he had thrown himself down. The gauchos roared with laughter. They cried out that they had seen every sort of animal caught, but had never before seen a man caught by himself. During the last two succeeding days I reached the farthest point which I was anxious to examine. The country wore the same aspect, till at last the fine green turf became more wearisome than a dusty turnpike road. We everywhere saw great numbers of partridges, Nothura major. These birds do not go in cubbies, nor do they conceal themselves like the English kind. It appears a very silly bird. A man on horseback, by riding around and round in a circle, or rather in a spire so as to approach closer each time, may knock on the head as many as he pleases. The more common method is to catch them with a running noose, or little lazo, made of the stem of an ostrich's feather, fastened to the end of a long stick. A boy on a quiet old horse will frequently thus catch thirty or forty in a day. In Arctic North America, the Indians catch the varying hair by walking spirally round and round it, when on its form. The middle of the day is reckoned the best time, when the sun is high, and the shadow of the hunter not very long. On our return to Maldonado, we followed a rather different line of road. Near Pan de Azucar, a landmark well known to all those who have sailed up the Plata, I stayed a day at the house of a most hospitable old Spaniard. Early in the morning we ascended to the Sierra de las Animas. By the aid of the rising sun the scenery was almost picturesque. To the westward the view extended over an immense level plain as far as the mount, at Montevideo, and to the eastward over the mammillated country of Maldonado. On the summit of the mountain there were several small heaps of stones, which evidently had lain there for many years. My companion assured me that they were the work of the Indians in the old time. The heaps were similar, but on a much smaller scale, to those commonly found on the mountains of Wales. The desire to signalize any event on the highest point of the neighboring land seems a universal passion with mankind. At the present day not a single Indian, either civilized or wild, exists in this part of the province. 
nor am I aware that the former inhabitants have left behind them any more permanent records than these insignificant piles on the summit of the Sierra de las Animas. The general and almost entire absence of trees in the Banda Oriental is remarkable. Some of the rocky hills are partly covered by the thickets, and on the banks of the larger streams, especially to the north of Las Minas, willow trees are not uncommon. Near the Arroyo Tapes I heard of a wood of palms, and one of these trees of considerable size I saw near the Pan de Azucar, in latitude 35 degrees. These, and the trees planted by the Spaniards, offer the only exceptions to the general scarcity of wood. Among the introduced kinds may be enumerated poplars, olives, peach, and other fruit trees. The peaches succeeded so well that they afford the main supply of firewood to the city of Buenos Aires. Extremely level countries, such as the Pampas, seldom appear favorable to the growth of trees. This may possibly be attributed either to the force of winds or the kind of drainage. In the nature of the land, however, around Maldonado, no such reason is apparent. The rocky mountains afford protected situations, enjoying various kinds of soil. Streamlets of water are common at the bottoms of nearly every valley, and the clayey nature of the earth seems adapted to retain moisture. It has been inferred, with much probability, that the presence of woodland is generally determined by the annual amount of moisture. Yet in this province abundant and heavy rains fall during the winter, and the summer, though dry, is not so in any excessive degree. We see nearly the whole of Australia covered by lofty trees, yet that country possesses a far more arid climate. Hence we must look to some other and unknown cause. Confining our view to South America, we should certainly be tempted to believe the trees flourished only under a very humid climate, for the limit of the forest land follows in a most remarkable manner that of the damp winds. In the southern part of the continent, where the western gales charged with moisture from the Pacific prevail, every island on the broken west coast, from latitude 38 degrees to the extreme point of Tierra del Fuego, is densely covered by impenetrable forests. On the eastern side of the Cordillera, over the same extent of latitude, where a blue sky and a fine climate prove that the atmosphere has been deprived of its moisture by passing over the mountains, the arid plains of Patagonia support a most scanty vegetation. In the more northern parts of the continent, within the limits of the constant southeastern trade wind, the eastern sky is ornamented by magnificent forests, whilst the western coast, from latitude 4 degrees south to latitude 32 degrees south, may be described as a desert. On this western coast, northward of latitude 4 degrees south, where the trade wind loses its regularity, and heavy torrents of rain fall periodically, the shores of the Pacific, so utterly desert in Peru, assume, near Cape Blanco, the character of luxuriance so celebrated at Guayanquil and Panama. Hence, in the southern and northern parts of the continent, the forest and desert lands occupy reversed positions with respect to the Cordillera, and these positions are apparently determined by the direction of the prevalent winds. In the middle of the continent there is a broad intermediate band, including central Chile and the provinces of La Plata, 
where the rain-bringing winds have not to pass over lofty mountains, and where the land is neither a desert nor covered by forests. But even the rule, if confined to South America, of trees flourishing only in a climate rendered humid by rain-bearing winds, has a strongly marked exception in the case of the Falkland Islands. These islands, situated in the same latitude with Tierra del Fuego, and only between two and three hundred miles distant from it, having a nearly similar climate, with a geological formation almost identical, with favorable situations, and the same kind of peaty soil, yet can boast a few plants deserving even the title of bushes. Whilst in Tierra del Fuego it is impossible to find an acre of land not covered by the densest forest. In this case, both the direction of the heavy gales of wind and of the currents of the sea are favorable to the transport of seeds from Tierra del Fuego, as is shown by canoes and trunks of trees drifted from that country, and frequently thrown on the shores of the western Falkland. Hence perhaps it is that there are many plants common to the two countries, but with respect to the trees of Tierra del Fuego, even attempts made to transplant them have failed. During our stay at Maldonado, I collected several quadrupeds, eighty kinds of birds, and many reptiles, including nine species of snakes. Of the indigenous mammalia, the only one now left of any size which is common is the Cervus campestris. This deer is exceedingly abundant, often in small herds, throughout the countries bordering the Plata and in northern Patagonia. If a person crawling close along the ground slowly advances toward a herd, the deer frequently, out of curiosity, approach to reconnoiter him. I have by this means killed from one spot three out of the same herd. Although so tame and inquisitive, yet when approached on horseback they are exceedingly wary. In this country nobody goes on foot, and the deer knows man as its enemy only when he is mounted and armed with the bolas. At Bahia Blanca, a recent establishment in northern Patagonia, I was surprised to find how little the deer cared for the noise of a gun. One day I fired ten times from within eighty yards at one animal, and it was much more startled at the ball cutting up the ground than at the report of the rifle. My powder being exhausted, I was obliged to get up, to my shame as a sportsman be it spoken, though well able to kill birds on the wing, and halloo till the deer ran away. The most curious fact with respect to this animal is the overpoweringly strong and offensive odor which proceeds from the buck. It is quite indescribable. Several times while skinning the specimen which is now mounted at the Zoological Museum, I was almost overcome by nausea. I tied up the skin in a silk pocket handkerchief, and so carried it home. This handkerchief, after being well washed, I continually used, and it was of course repeatedly washed. Yet every time, for a space of one year and seven months, when first unfolded, I distinctly perceived the odor. This appears an astonishing instance of the permeance of some matter, which nevertheless in its nature must be most subtle and volatile. Frequently, when passing at the distance of half a mile leeward of a herd, I have perceived the whole air tainted with the effluvium. I believe the smell from the buck is most powerful at the period when its horns are perfect, or free from the hairy skin. When in this state the meat is, of course, quite uneatable. But the gauchos assert that if buried for some time in fresh earth, the taint is removed. 
I have somewhere read that the islanders in the north of Scotland treat the rank carcasses of the fish-eating birds in the same manner. The order Rodentia is here very numerous in species. Of mice alone I obtained no less than eight kinds. In a footnote. In South America I collected altogether twenty-seven species of mice, and thirteen more are known from the works of Azara and other authors. Those collected by myself have been named and described by Mr. Waterhouse at the meetings of the Zoological Society. I must be allowed to take this opportunity of returning my cordial thanks to Mr. Waterhouse, and to the other gentlemen attached to that society, for their kind and liberal assistance on all occasions. End of footnote. The largest gnawing animal in the world, the Hydrocaris capybara, the water-hog, is here also common. One which I shot at Montevideo weighed ninety-eight pounds. Its length, from the end of the snout to the stump-like tail, was three feet two inches, and its girth three feet eight. These great rodents occasionally frequent the islands in the mouth of the Plata, where the water is quite salt, but are far more abundant on the borders of fresh-water lakes and rivers. Near Maldonado three or four generally live together. In the daytime they either lie among the aquatic plants, or openly feed on the turf plain. Footnote. In the stomach and duodenum of a capybara which I opened, I found a very large quantity of a thin yellowish fluid, in which scarcely a fiber could be distinguished. Mr. Owen informs me that a part of the esophagus is so constructed that nothing much larger than a crow-quill can be passed down. Certainly the broad teeth and strong jaws of this animal are well fitted to grind into pulp the aquatic plants on which it feeds. End of footnote. When viewed at a distance, from their manner of walking and color, they resemble pigs. But when seated on their haunches, and attentively watching any object with one eye, they reassume the appearance of their congeners, caves and rabbits. Both the front and side view of their head has quite a ludicrous aspect, from the great depth of their jaw. These animals, at Maldonado, were very tame. By cautiously walking, I approached within three yards of four old ones. This tameness may probably be accounted for, by the jaguar having been banished for some years, and by the gaucho not thinking it worth his while to hunt them. As I approached nearer and nearer, they frequently made their peculiar noise, which is a low, abrupt grunt, not having much actual sound, but rather arising from the sudden expulsion of air. The only noise I know at all like it is the first hoarse bark of a large dog. Having watched the four from almost within arm's length, and they me, for several minutes, they rushed into the water at full gallop, with the greatest impetuosity, and emitted at the same time their bark. After diving a short distance, they came again to the surface, but only just showed the upper part of their heads. When the female is swimming in the water, and has the young ones, they are afraid to sit on her back. These animals are easily killed in numbers, but their skins are of trifling value, and the meat is very indifferent. On the islands in the Rio Parana, they are exceedingly abundant, and afford the ordinary prey to the jaguar. End of chapter 3, part 1. Recording by Roger Turnow.